Welcome to The Word Unveiled. Peace be with you. My name is Gordon Peck. I'm the Director of Evangelization Programs for Adults at St. Malachy Church in Sterling Heights, Michigan. St. Malachy is part of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Our program today is a little different. Uh, it's not liturgical, it's not on scriptures, but it's about Catholic beginnings in Detroit. So it's a historical story and it's a four-part program. Let's, as we do in all things, begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you that we live in a land where the gospel is proclaimed with vigor and enthusiasm. Teach us to cherish the freedoms we have in giving due praise to you, our Lord. Teach us to always worship you and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as our Savior Jesus Christ teaches us. May our faith grow richer and more complete every day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, we're going to cover the time period from 1534 to 1699. This is not a picture of Detroit in 1534, but it could have looked something like this. In 1534, Europe was in the early years of a religious revolution. Uh, there were many people breaking away from the church and establishing their own understanding of scripture and sacraments if they believed in sacraments. The Catholic Church was still dominant in France, Spain, Italy, Ireland, and parts of Southern and Eastern Europe, but a variety of Protestant churches had emerged in, in Germany, mostly in the north of Germany, and throughout Scandinavia, and even as far as Iceland. Uh, there was uh, Calvinism was uh, uh, established in Switzerland, the Netherlands, some parts of Eastern Europe, but, and especially in Scotland. And then in England, uh, King Henry VIII formed his own church because he got in an argument with the Pope over uh, not being allowed a divorce. And so that was more of a political revolution than a religious dispute. And so Anglicanism uh, was established in England. But at the same time period, land was discovered in the Western Hemisphere, and that changed a lot of things. The person most responsible for, for this was, of course, Christopher Columbus. Now, Christopher Columbus was widely reputed to be an Italian, but there may be some doubt about that. Uh, he was, um, he washed up on shore after a battle between Spanish government ships and uh, a fleet of pirates on the south shore of Spain. He claimed to be an Italian who had been captured by the, the pirates. But later in his life, he wrote a letter to his brother who was in Milan, and he wrote it in Spanish. In any event, he was the one who started to research uh, what was to the West. He went as far as Iceland to learn about the Norse voyages that happened a thousand years before that. And so he, has, he came up with the theory that he was going to sail south of that land and, and find his way to India. So he convinced Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain to finance the operation, and they gave him three tiny little ships. They didn't spend a whole lot on his first, his first expedition, but they gave him three ships, and, and he sailed west until he hit the Bahamas, and, and he was surprised to, to find land there. He expected to go to India, but he found land standing in his way. And that sparked uh, a number of voyages. The Portuguese, in the meantime, had been sailing south along the coast of Africa trying to uh, find where the land ended so they could turn to the east and, and get to India that way. Well, 
these explorations by both the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, prompted a lot of disputes about who the land's going to belong to. Obviously, the land belonged to the people who lived there, but this is the age of imperialism. So they uh, appealed to the only um, source of world um, politics, if you will, and that was the church. There was no United Nations at that time, so they appealed to the church, and the Pope divided the land, the newfound lands, between Portugal and Spain, and the line of demarcation went basically down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So Brazil winds up in the Portuguese hands, and that's why they speak Portuguese in Brazil today. Okay, the rest of the nations kind of came to this exploration game a little late. The French uh, relied on a man by the name of Jacques Cartier, and he was born in 1493, the year after Columbus discovered land. He was appointed by the French king to find a route to China, trying to do the same thing Columbus had tried to do, but he was gonna sail north around those lands. And of course, that didn't work. He actually uh, ran into an island that he called Newfoundland, and he found a large river, the St. Lawrence, and he discovered that it was a, a tidal estuary, and it went inland, and he went as far as uh, a village called Stadacona. This was an Algonquin uh, village. Algonquin nations lived there, and that is now the city of Quebec. And then he went a little farther, and he found Hokalaga, and that's the city of Montreal. He overwintered in Canada on his second and third voyages, but illness, uh, harsh winters, and conflicts with the native peoples prevented his colony from continuing, and they abandoned the whole effort in 1543. Nevertheless, Cartier's voyages uh, brought back information to France, and France would continue to probe the northern parts of the Atlantic. This is a map of where he went to, and you can see Newfoundland to the to the east, he sailed all around that. He sailed to Cape Breton Island and Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Anticosti Island, and then inland to Stadacona, which is the city of Quebec, and Hokalaga, which becomes the city of Montreal. Another man that came right after Cartier was Samuel de Champlain. As a young man, he went to the Caribbean and he, and he said he did trading business, but it was more likely he was a pirate uh, raiding Spanish uh, uh, cities and, and uh, galleons, but he returned to France and he offered his services to the king in, for establishing a new colony in the New World. So he sailed back to Stadacona in 1608 and he founded a, a, a settlement there that would last, uh, would be permanent, and that would be the city of Quebec. He, unlike uh, Cartier, developed good relations with the indigenous people that lived there. And that was the Wendat, or Hurons, and the Montagne, who were an Algonquin-speaking uh, people. The Hurons spoke Iroquois. There were two major language groups in that area, Iroquois and Algonquin. So Champagne uh, explored the area, and on one trip, he, he was with his friends, the uh, Huron and Montagne, and, and they went into northern, the, what we now call the northern part of, of uh, New York and they encountered the people known as the Mohawks, who are Iroquois. And they were natural enemies of the Wendat. So Champlain and his two companions brought out their matchlock muskets, uh, they're called arquebuses, and these were clumsy affairs. They would set a stake in the ground, they'd put the musket on top of the stake like a, to hold it up, they would load the the uh, a musket with powder in the pan, and then they had a long uh, combustible 
kind of rope-like or cord-like item that was a match. They would light that and then they would touch the match to the, to the, uh, to the powder and it would go off. Well, the Iroquois had never seen anything like this and, and their chief and, and seven others were killed by these guns. And that caused a great uh, conflict and a bitterness between the Iroquois and the French. And it would affect how long it took to establish a, a settlement at Detroit. This is the sort of the map of the area. We see the two villages of Quebec and Montreal and uh, Champlain set out. He went up the Ottawa River to uh, uh, Georgian Bay. Then he went overland and he went into the land of the, of the Iroquois and that's where the battle occurred. And then that formed a uh, uh, sort of like a line of warfare between these, these different nations. He had a lieutenant whose name was Etienne Brule and he also explored he came down the same routes. He went into western part of New York through what we would now call Ohio. And in 1615, he passed by uh, the Straits of Detroit, passed by the city. So this is how the nations sort of were distributed in, in uh, North America. There were two language types, the Algonquin and the Iroquois. The Iroquois were mostly in New York State and southern part of Ontario. And uh, the Algonquin nations were arranged all around them. Now, when Champlain came, he brought uh, religious fathers with him. He brought Reculet or, or Franciscans with him in 1615, and they divided the land into two provinces. They, they set up the land around the St. Lawrence River as one province, and then they set up the land around the uh, Huron, uh, around Georgian Bay of the uh, Huron nation. And, these, and then Jesuit missionaries came after them, and they arrived in 1625. And they went even into New York and went amongst the Iroquois people and bravely um, became missionaries to them. And then in 1632, the Jesuits began to write about their exploits, and they uh, made this historical record called the Jesuit Relations. And that was written for decades, uh, and it recorded everything that, that happened. Um, the, they talked about the missions that were there. They were printed annually back in Paris, and uh, they would talk about what happened. They would show the, the acts of bravery, but they were also a fundraising uh, device. So they would get people to uh, contribute to keep their, their missions going, but they'd also recruit young men to the, to the priesthood so that they would go to these missions. Now, it was tough. Uh, they had a lot of difficulty explaining themselves uh, to the native peoples because there were a lot of concepts in our faith that they, they uh, didn't have words for in either Iroquois or Algonquin. The Wendat, the, the Hurons, they, they believed in three different worlds. They believed in a world of dead spirits, they believed in a world of dreams, and then they also believed in the world where they lived day to day. And of these, the day-to-day -day was less important to them. The world of dreams and the world of dead spirits took on a greater importance. So sometimes they would get omens and their shamans or their um, religious people would interpret these for them and tell them what they were meant to do from their dreams. And so they were very conscious of what dreams occurred to them. The Jesuits founded uh, uh, their main um, mission in Georgian Bay and it was called St. Marie Among the Hurons. In 1634, the Jesuits took it over, and they and it was built on the Wye River, 
It's near Midland, Ontario. In fact, it's been restored and you can visit it now. Uh, this, these are photographs of what it, what it looks like and what it was, uh, how it's been recreated to represent what it looked like in 1634. This, the little settlement was divided into two parts. There was a European compound, uh, which had storehouses and schools and barracks and sheds and gardens. And then there was the uh, indigenous compound, which had longhouses and, and bark houses, and then a large church or chapel for the uh, Huron people. These are some more photos from, from that restored mission. In 1638, Jerome Lallemand arrived as the new superior. And by 1639, there were 13 fathers active amongst the Huron and Petun people. Petun means tobacco. Uh, Lallemand uh, planned an agriculturally self-sufficient, fortified missionary center located in the center of what he called Huronia. And, and it had easy access back to Quebec by canoe so they could meet their supply needs. Um, it, was, it was located on the Y River, and at its busiest, it hit, there were 19 priests there, four lay brothers, 23 dones. These are uh, workers that would work for the priests, four boys, seven domestics, and eight soldiers. By the late 1640s, besides the missions, uh, this mission here, there were missions at St. Joseph, Ontario. Um, there was missions to the Batoon people, the Nipissing at St. Esprit, and the Ojibwa and Ottawa people at St. Pierre, and also some Algonquin bands along the Georgian Bay at St. Charles, Ontario. Now, the French called the people Hurons, and <laughs> what it meant to them was, it, was, it meant wild boar. They thought that their shaved heads with a central tuft of hair resembled a wild boar. The people, however, called themselves the Wendat, which meant the dwellers of the peninsula, or the islanders, and their home was centered around Georgian Bay. They spoke a dialect of the Iroquois language, they traveled by canoe, and they lived in towns surrounded by a triple row of palisades. There's a photo of a palisade here. And their palisades were not um, large diameter uh, poles uh, anchored in the ground. They were more like tree branches trimmed and lashed together, and there were openings between them because they didn't have uh, muskets, they didn't have artillery, they only had uh, uh, arrows and, and lances and, and, uh, and clubs. And so the idea of the, of the palisade was that you had to climb over it. And if you climbed over it, you would then be exposed uh, to their warriors. And they would put a triple row of these palisades around the, the village. And so the French started to copy that. The Hurons themselves lived in longhouses. They were made from tree bark. And, and they would stretch the tree bark over a frame. The houses were usually about 20 feet wide and they could be up to 150 feet in length. They were constructed with a door at each end, but there were no windows. There was an opening in the roof, a long uh, series of openings or a rectangular opening that allowed smoke from their cooking fires to escape from the building. These fires were also their source of heat in the winter. And many families would live within this dwelling uh, on each side, there would be uh, bunks or, or bedding was built on platforms, and they would put their personal belongings under the bed, and then they'd sleep on top of that. And then, they, and then up above in the rafters, they would hang up uh, skins or plants uh, that they would dry, anything they wanted to dry uh, and, and either uh, use for making clothing or, or use for food. Their cooking fires were in the center. And one of the big drawbacks of this is that they lacked immunity to many of the diseases that the French brought. 
So if the if somebody got sick within a particular house, very often the entire house uh, would succumb to the disease. Now the Jesuit fathers um, were very brave missionaries, and they went to the Huron people, and and they they were spreading the word, but they may have underestimated the challenge because it was very difficult to convey spiritual concepts to the Huron. They didn't have the words. They couldn't translate it into it. So the, so the Jesuit fathers had to start relying on terms that the uh, Huron understood. So they began to talk about animals and nature and, and try to make the connections between our faith and what the, the people could understand. And they unfortunately could not reach the vast majority of people and only a small number of people actually converted. And one of those, the most famous perhaps of, of the converts at this time was St. Kateri Tekawitha. She was born in 1656 in the Mohawk village of Asurnanan and her mother was an Algonquin who had been captured by the Mohawks. This was very common. The nations would raid each other from time to time and they would steal children and they would steal women and they would, and then they would become part of that, that nation. They would just be automatically adopted into their new nation. Well, when Kateri was only four years old, she contracted smallpox. And not only did it scar her skin and make her life very miserable, but it also killed almost everybody in her family. Uh, she was adopted by an uncle and she, who, and, and, uh, she was raised uh, by him as part of Mohawk clan. And her adoptive parents decided to find her a husband. So they proposed a suitor to her, but at age 19, she converted to Catholicism. She was one of the few who was listening to, to the priests and understanding, and she took a vow, a vow of chastity, and she pledged to marry only Jesus Christ. So her decision was very unpopular, and her parents were very upset with her, so the priests took her to Montreal, and she studied her faith there in Montreal for the next several years. She was very ascetic. She would put thorns under her sleeping mat to, um, to live a more ascetic life and, 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 and along with her studies. And she uh, became a servant to the community where she lived and she would fast many times and she would actually put dirt within her food sometimes. Again, this, uh, this uh, self-mortification was a, was a big thing with her, but she was very devout and she had steadfast devotion, and she, and she, but she also was very sickly, perhaps because of some of her practices. And so sadly, just five years after her conversion, uh, she became ill and she passed away at the very young age of 24, and that was in April of 1680. And her name, Kateri, is a Mohawk form of Catherine, which she took from understanding the life of St. Catherine of Siena. So St. Kateri Tekawitha, was canonized by Pope Benedict XVI on October 21st, 2012. Now, the Beaver Wars. This was an unfortunate development which led to the demise of many of the indigenous peoples. Uh, the, the demand for furs in Europe was great. They would take the furs and they especially wanted the short hairs of the beaver pelt and they would make these felt fabrics and they would make top hats for, for gentlemen in Europe, so that was the that was the uh, uh, the business. The Dutch, the English, and the French all traded in this. 
and they would trade with any of the uh, indigenous peoples that would trap these animals. Well, the Iroquois in New York state trapped out the entire state. So pretty soon there were like no beaver left in New York. And so they began to trade with people to the West and the people to the West were the Hurons. So originally they traded with them and then around 1640, they shifted their tactics to raiding the uh, settlements of the Hurons and stealing their pelts and even wiping out the Hurons. So who's caught in the middle of this, but of course the French Jesuit missionaries. So the Mohawk and their sister nations, the Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca, these are the five nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. They declared war on the French settlement and all the uh, indigenous nations that allied with the French, and that included primarily the Huron. In 1646, Father Isaac Jogues and his lay helper, René Gopil, were killed in northern New York. We have two parishes in Macomb County named after both of these saints. Then in uh, March of 1649, Father Jean de Brebeuf and Father Charles Lalmont were martyred at St. Louis, which is one of the Huron villages near St. Marie. They were martyred, they were murdered by the Iroquois raiding parties. And then more, more fathers were killed uh, in this time period. And in 1649, the remaining Jesuits had to abandon St. Marie along with several hundred Hurons. Uh, they moved north to Christian Island in Georgian Bay for the winter. And then in the next spring, they retired back to Montreal and, and to Quebec City. So there was a state where the Iroquois were running free across the Great Lakes and the French effort and the French influence was pretty much gone. But after about 20 years or so, uh, a number of Jesuits returned. Uh, the most notable one was uh, Jacques Marquette. He was born in 1637 in France and he became a missionary in 1650. In 1666, he went to, to Quebec. And after his arrival in Quebec and between then and 1669, he traveled throughout New France. New France was the name for the colony, mostly in, uh, uh, in Canada, but included parts of the United States like Michigan. And he spent time with various tribes learning their tribal languages. And then he established a mission at Sault Ste. Marie, uh, and, and that was in 1668. He soon left Sault Ste. Marie to found another mission, and this one was uh, at Mackinac Island, and later it was shifted to the mainland and is in the and is, was located where St. Ignace, Michigan is now uh, established. And St. Ignace, of course, was named after Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order. Now, a secular leader who came to New France uh, in 1672 was Louis Dubois de Frontenac, and he was appointed governor of the colony by the king. He supported the expansion of the fur trade, but he came into uh, conflict with members of the Sovereign Council, that was the Sovereign Council who oversaw the activities in Canada, uh, over his use of prisoners to build new forts. And he also came in conflict with the Bishop Francois de Laval, who is the bishop in, in Quebec City because Frontenac supported selling brandy to the Aboriginal tribes. And that was, and the bishop, of course, considered that a mortal sin. And running afoul of the bishop, Frontenac was recalled in 1682. However, he must have had friends in, in, in Paris because he was reinstated 
1689, and during his second term, he actually defended Quebec from an English invasion, uh, invasion where during what was called the King, King William's War. And he also had a successful campaign against the Iroquois, and that kind of neutralized the Iroquois threat for a while. So this led to a much larger expansion of the fur trade, and they began to use what they called courier de bois. These were people that are born in Canada of French descent who were runners of the woods. They were fur traders. And they used a feudal system of government, kind of like they had in the Middle Ages, where a local governor would be in, in charge of a community, and he would get 10% off the top of what anybody made. Um, this angered the Jesuits because uh, this, they were people, the French secularists were getting wealthy at the expense of the Aboriginal people because they were frequently cheating them uh, with, re, with what they paid them for furs. Another uh, leader from France who showed up was René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de La Salle. He's commonly known as La Salle in the history books. He was one of Frontenac's appointees. And he had used his family wealth back in Paris to get this job. And so he influenced Frontenac to let him uh, expand the trade to the West. And Frontenac said, okay, go into the Iroquois area and see if you can neutralize the Seneca, who are the westernmost of the Iroquois nations. And he did, and this was near the Niagara River. So as he was in that area, a priest who was with him, Father Louis Hennepin, happened to go ahead of the party by some distance, and he discovered Niagara Falls, or at least he was the first European to see Niagara Falls. So then La Salle decided to construct a sailing ship that he was going to use on the Great Lakes, and he was going to go all the way to the Illinois country, or Illinois, uh, to the people that lived there who were Algonquin speakers, and he was going to trade with them and bring his, his fur trade back using the, the Great Lakes as a, as a highway of commerce. So he's the first one to, to, uh, to do that. So he builds this little ship. It's, uh, it was about 40 tons. Uh, it would be about the size of a good-sized sailboat on Lake St. Clair these days. But it was armed with seven small cannons. It had a crew of 6 to 12 to make it uh, work. And it was built above Niagara Falls, that is on the Lake Erie side. And they sailed from there to Green Bay, and then it disappeared. No one ever saw it after that. So when they set out, LaSalle had a party of about 40 men. Some of them sailed on the Griffin, but others were had to sail in, uh, in canoes. And they reached the mouth of the Detroit River on the 10th of August, 1679. And then they went past Detroit, and they went up to Lac St. Clair. It was on the 12th of August that they entered into, this, into the, the wide spot in the river, that we call Lake St. Clair, and it was on the feast day of St. Clair of Assisi, hence the name Lake St. Clair. After that, they continued northward, they went across Lake Huron, and they got to Point St. Ignace, and they anchored in these calm waters of, of the natural harbor at Mackinac Island. And there was a settlement of Huron, Ottawa, and a few Frenchmen on Mackinac Island. So La Salle went ashore, dressed himself up in his finest uh, uh, suit and, and, uh, and made himself look very regal. And he went ashore and he celebrated mass in the little chapel. And, and then he told the, the native peoples what he was about to do. And he sent his ship, the Griffin, into Green Bay, that would be Green Bay, Wisconsin, to collect furs that had already been collected and were stored there waiting for the ship to arrive. 
Meanwhile, he and his party in canoes uh, went south into Lake Michigan, and they got to St. Joseph at the head of Lake Michigan on the Michigan side, and they portaged through the rivers until they got into the Illinois River, and they, and they went down the Illinois River until they came to the great village of the Illinois nation, which is where the city of Peoria now stands. There he established a trading post. He called it Fort Crevecoir, and it was also meant to be a protection against the Iroquois because the Iroquois were now starting to move into that area and threaten the, uh, the Illinois. So after he had spent his time there, he and a small party went farther to the west until they came to the Mississippi River. And they followed it all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And he declared all the land that he had traveled through to be the property of the King of France, and he named it Louisiana. Upon his return to the Illinois country, he was informed that the Griffin had not arrived to bring him back as it was scheduled. The ship was never seen again. So he had to go overland. He went from the Chicago area to Detroit. He crossed over the Detroit River and went overland through Ontario all the way back to Montreal. And upon arriving, he was convinced that a mutinous crew had stolen the furs, burned the ship, and gone over to the English colonies to make their money. Fort Crevecoir in the great uh, village of the Illinois was destroyed by an Iroquois raiding party only a few years later. So previous to La Salle's activity, the French had encouraged people of the First Nations to bring all their furs down to Montreal or Quebec. But then times changed and they started to establish these trading posts at different places. And they also sent out these courier de bois to trade with the tribes directly at their villages. And so when they would establish a new post, they would put a senior, uh, a governor, over this uh, particular uh, trading post, and they would give him a cut of 10% of all the transactions that took place. That was how he was paid. So while that, would, that uh, attracted a lot of get-rich-quick uh, uh, schemers, and it attracted very few settlers and families. And so the French colonies never ever really prospered like the British colonies did because the British colonies had land, they attracted families, and the French colonies were simply about making a fast buck and going home. And that brings about uh, perhaps the greatest scoundrel of the time, and that's Antoine Lomé de la Mothe Cadillac. Yeah, his, his name would have pronounced Cadillac. LL is always a wise sound. But don't tell anybody who drives a Cadillac that's how they should say it. So we'll call him Cadillac. He was born in Gascony in southwestern France. He went to Quebec, where he expanded his name to Antoine Lomé de la Mothe. Uh, he gave himself a title. He gave himself the title. Nobody gave him that title. So he was a liar from the start. Uh, in 1683, he went to Port Royal, which is in Nova Scotia, also a French colony. And there he presented himself as a professional soldier and an educated man. But he had no proof of this, and he contradicted himself on many occasions, as is found in his letters. He was employed by a privateer named Francois de Desprez. Now, a privateer was pretty much a pirate. Um, the, a privateer would be given a letter by the king of his nation to raid ships belonging to the king of another nation. So in this case, the king of France gave this privateer uh, authority to go raid British ships. And so the privateer would pay for his own ships, he'd pay for his own weapons, he'd have his own crew, and then he'd keep whatever he, whatever he captured. So that was the guy that Cadillac fell in with. 
and he winds up marrying his niece. And But while he's in Acadia, in this part of Nova Scotia, people begin to get wise of Cadillac's scheming, and they talk a lot about his evil mind, and that he had been chased out of France, and he was looking for opportunities in New France. So some months after his tour of duty in Acadia, Cadillac's back in France, where he catches the attention of the new minister of the colonies, Louis Philippe de Pontchartrain. And so the Pontchartrain, he's like the secretary of the Navy, but the secretary of the Navy is in charge of all foreign colonies. So, so he becomes his friend and he, he recommends him to uh, Governor Frontenac in New France as here's a good guy to work for you. So in 1693, Frontenac assigns Cadillac to the command of the military trading post at Michilimackinac. So his mission was to consolidate the work of his predecessor, a man by the name of Daniel Duluth, whom the city of Duluth is named after. And he had established good relations with the Ottawa and other nations trading there. But in a few short months, Cadillac managed to discourage everybody that he dealt with. And soon the Ottawa were bypassing Michilimackinac and they were traveling hundreds of miles to trade with the English. So news of how Cadillac was cheating the Ottawa reached the ears of the missionary priests at Sault Ste. Marie. And they in turn wrote to, the, to, the, uh, to their people in Paris with this disturbing news asking for Cadillac's removal. Well, Cadillac then writes to Frontenac, the governor of New France, who was in Quebec, and he tells them that the Ottawa are being attracted to the English and he proposed to move the outpost to La Détroit, which means at the head of Lake Erie, La Détroit means the strait, we call it Detroit, to counter these, this turn of events. So from there, he argued he could control the fur trade and prevent the native peoples from trading with the English. He implied that the location was the issue, not his unfair trade practices, and that the disgruntled, disgruntled claims of the Ottawa backed up by the testimony of the Jesuits was just a bunch of lies. But in 1698, before he could get the approval from Frontenac, Frontenac died. So criticized on all sides, Cadillac decides to go back to France and he goes back to Minister Pontchartrain and he tells him of his plan uh, for establishing a permanent colony on the Detroit River. And on May 27th, 1699, the king decreed that it be carried out. So Cadillac was commanded to achieve a six-fold mandate. First, he was to prevent the beaver trade falling into Iroquois hands. Second, to deliver the highest quality pelts, since France was saturated with skins of a mediocre quality. Uh, three, to ensure that the courier de bois had work. Four, to guarantee benefits for the merchants who had to uh, work in these, these settlements. And then uh, five, to reunite all the allied nations, that is the indigenous peoples, at the Detroit Post. And then last of all, to uh, bring colonists and missionaries and, and people of uh, French um, ancestry into the Detroit area and have them intermarry with the indigenous peoples to create a new French nation. So in Quebec City, the implications of such a project were perhaps better understood in Paris and there was hesitation putting it into action because it could infuriate the Iroquois. They knew that this was much too close to the Iroquois land and it might cause trouble. So um, they, they were not so happy about it. There were also doubts about Cadillac's ability to carry it out successfully since he had seemed to mess up everything he had touched so far. 
So Cadillac responded in a letter to Minister Pontchartrain, and he wrote, either the plan is good or it is bad. If it is good, then it should be carried out. Choose a man of thought and action to execute it, and you can be assured that it will succeed, despite the secret difficulties that people want to make of it. And of course, he recommended himself for that role. So Paris decreed in 1699 that Cadillac should be begin to prepare for carrying out this project. So the map of North America in 1699 looked something like this. There were Dutch and British colonies on the Atlantic seaboard. The French had colonies all the way from uh, Quebec City in the, in the tidal estuary, all the way down to the great uh, village of the Illinois, which is identified by number six. And there was sort of a line of demarcation between um, the Iroquois and the uh, British and, and uh, Dutch colonies, and then all of New France and the Algonquin colonies. So that's where we'll conclude part one. Next, uh, next time we'll talk about the church being established in Detroit, and we'll talk about Saint Anne du Détroit, Father Gabriel Richard, the true uh, father of Detroit, and the great fire of Detroit, and churches along the waterways. So let's conclude in prayer. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.